Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. And it is our privilege at this time to turn our attention to the scriptures. And so this morning, I'd invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We are in a series uh, studying the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapter 5. Verse 1 through the end of chapter 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, But we are taking a little break in the midst of this, and we haven't gotten real far. We're not quite to the end of chapter 5, but we're taking a three-week break. So we're turning to chapter 5, and I wanted to read a little section of the sermon, just as a reminder to keep us uh, thinking about the sermon. Verses 13 through 16, a message, a portion of scripture we've already studied. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's uh, bow for a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the privilege we have of studying it and looking into it, but we know our need for your spirit to open our eyes, to illuminate us to the truths of Scripture. So we all come and sit at your feet. We ask that you open our eyes to your truth for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We are continuing a shorter series that we're doing for three weeks, started last week, this week, and next week on spiritual disciplines. And there is a very good reason why, why we're talking about spiritual disciplines in the midst of a study of the Sermon on the Mount. The reason is that the Sermon on the Mount, uh, with all of the efforts to understand it, one of the classes I took in seminary was on the Sermon on the Mount and the history of the interpretation and the understanding of the Sermon on the Mount is amazing because there is such effort to grapple with these high standards, these expectations that Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Mount and the, the truth of the grace of God and the forgiveness of God and the free gift of life that is given to us in Christ. How do these go together? Are these complementary? Do they work together? Do we have to follow this one to get this one? Do we have to just get this one and we don't have to worry about this one? It's a big question. But one of the things that we that I think is the truth and that I think through years of thinking about this, learning about the Sermon on the Mount, what, what Jesus is pointing to is the transformation of life that he is bringing into the world through his ministry, through his life, his teaching, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. And that's not just this kind of free gift that we get that we get when we go to heaven. It is that. I'm not talking against that. But it's so much more than that. 
And so what challenges us is this Sermon on the Mount because it's talking about these high expectations of how we should live. And is that what Christianity is about? Making sure we live a certain way? Well, I think that's one of our struggles with the Sermon on the Mount. What we see in the Sermon on the Mount is not a list of behaviors or an external law that must be fulfilled. What we see is Jesus describing a people of the kingdom of God, which is initiated in our hearts and in our lives, and it should bear fruit in how we live, but it's bearing fruit in how we live out of who we have become, who we've become in union with Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount has been an issue in the 20th century, 21st century of the church because the gospel has been truncated by a strong emphasis on sin management. Seems like we think that the issue of, that the gospel solves is how to get rid of our sin and how to get us into heaven. And sometimes we're prone to characterize the gospel that way, that that's the message. Uh, one of the ways that this is recognized is a bumper sticker, <laughs> sorry, uh, an old bumper sticker. I haven't seen it much lately, but... It says so much about how we've characterized the gospel. That is, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Just think about that. Christians aren't perfect, therefore, we're not really changed that much. We're just the same as we were, but we're forgiven. That is not the gospel. Jesus didn't come here to forgive us and say, well, just wait a while till you get to heaven. That's what it's all about. And when we look at the epistles and we look at Paul, that's an important, there's an important truth there that we cannot miss about justification and what salvation and trusting Jesus and Jesus standing in our place And taking away our sin and in union with Jesus, having the promise of eternal life. But never, never forget that it's a transformed life. It's real life. God didn't just mean to give us a a ticket out of this world and out of hell and into heaven. He meant to bring life and beauty and righteousness and holiness to his people. That's why the Sermon on the Mount is a little challenging. Because we all know that we trusted Jesus, if we're believers. Not everyone has trusted Jesus, but the invitation is to everyone. Trust Jesus and have your sins forgiven. We celebrated that in the Lord's table. A a miraculous act of deliverance through Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. But it's not just to make us forgiven, it's to renew us. It's to transform. It's to make us his people. When he made us at the very beginning and we 
fell from grace. We fell from his perfect plan for us. He didn't just mean to make a way to cover over our faults and wait for some future day. No, the Sermon on the Mount is speaking to people who know Jesus, his kind of people. People that follow him, him, the people that have life in Jesus. And all of the descriptions in the Sermon on the Mount are directed towards how we live, how we do our day to day. And so we're not just saved and waiting to go to heaven. We're saved and changed and brought into this miraculous, wonderful relationship with Jesus so that we walk with him. So that we recognize that his kingdom is the kingdom. It's not about our kingdoms and what we do. It's not about our lives. It's about him. It's his glory, his purposes, his plans. That's where life is. And when we give ourselves to him in that way, then the beauty of the rule of Christ, the beauty of his grace, the characteristics of his kingdom flow through us in our daily lives. And people see it. Isn't that kind of what was said? That you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Not me, not you, just in ourselves. Not because we're special people or anything. But because God's grace and kingdom and love and life has been poured into us. And that changes everything in our lives. And if it doesn't change, we have to look at ourselves. And so many times I think we as Christians think, well, uh, what's the the least I can do? You know, if I just go to church and if I just give and once in a while and I'm pretty good, God's happy. We're, We're just waiting to get to heaven anyway. That's not the case. And the Sermon on the Mount is making that the case that that's not the case. We are new people. We are a new creation. We are a people of God, and we are to live as a people of God in the world. So when we think about Jesus, and we think about his ministry, I've said before that one of the most resounding statements we find of Jesus' preaching is that Jesus said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Or, in Matthew 3, 12, uh, 2, and then Mark 1, 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And we can find these statements over and over in all of the Gospels. The kingdom of God is at hand. What does that mean? Does that mean that we trust in Jesus and we're forgiven and we're waiting for some far-off future kingdom? I actually believe that The kingdom of God has been overlapped with the experience of us on the earth for a long time. And that when Jesus came into the world, he was bringing the kingdom of God, which is the rule of God, into this world. And that it was coming into our lives, and especially powerfully through Jesus and our relationship with him. Heaven has been invading our space, invading our world, and invading our lives through the presence of Jesus. And this great thing we are invited into, into living now. 
Not in the future, not sometime way off in the distance, but now. And there, this has been an ongoing theme through the Bible. And I don't know how we got to this idea. There, there was some the, theology that thought, well, the Sermon on the Mount is so grand and so high, it must be for the millennial kingdom way off in the future because we just couldn't figure out how to put it together with how we're to live now. But I want to make an argument that there is a way that God expected that Jesus called for us to live the kingdom now. And one of the reasons we fall short is because we think of it as something about some future kingdom a long way off. But the Bible never thinks of it that way. Let me give you a couple examples. You remember, if we look in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 21, we'll hear the story of Hagar. Hagar, it's a kind of complicated story because Abraham wanted a child and God had promised a child. Sarah said, well, we're not getting a child as we would normally. How about take my handmaiden and have a child with her and then he can be the heir. So Hagar had the child with Abraham and then Sarah got jealous and said, get her out of the house and get him out of the house. So they kicked him out of the house. So Hagar and Ishmael were on their own, without a home, without a land, without any sustenance. And they're in the wilderness in a lonely place. And they didn't have any food and they didn't have any water. And the water was at such a desperate level that the baby was about to die. And Hagar set the baby aside and turned away and said, I can't bear to watch my child just die of thirst. And in that moment... What we have is we hear God speaking. And verse 27 says, God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Now, from heaven. Uh, we might say, okay, well, yeah, that, that, you know, that's just kind of a figure of speech. You know, maybe it's from the sky or something like that. But I would say that Hagar is in a desolate place, a place of loneliness. There's nobody else around, no way to gain sustenance. But you know who was there? God was there. The angel spoke to her from heaven. That means God's knowledge, God's presence overlapped with the experience of this world. Another example, again, is Abraham. Abraham taking Isaac up on the mountain, Mount Moriah, a desolate place at that time. You remember he just told the slaves or the servants to stay and just Abraham and Isaac are going to go up on the mountain. They go up on the mountain and it seems like they're the only ones there. And Abraham has Isaac built an altar. And then Abraham ties up Isaac and lays him on the altar. And as Abraham is ready to slay his son in obedience to God's word. It says in verse 11 and 12 of Genesis 22. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. And said, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. And then a couple of verses later, verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. 
And we could say, okay, well, you know, that's just using the, from the sky or some, from some far off. Not really. They're in a desolate place. They're on a mountain by themselves. And God is intimately aware of what is going on right there. From heaven. From God's rule. Another example is Jacob on the run. He's sleeping in a ditch with stone as his pillow. He saw the earth and the heaven connected by a passageway, a stairway, and angels coming and going, and the Lord himself standing beside him. And he awoke in awe, saying, God lives here. Just another one. One of my favorite stories, and it's a big story in the Bible that's used over and over as an a model of our understanding of God's love and compassion and direction in our lives is at Mount Sinai when God delivers the people of Israel out of Egypt and brings them to the mountain in Exodus 20. And, and God wants to show his people who he is. He says, bring them out to the foot of the mountain and I will show up on that mountain. And you, I don't know if you remember that story. It's such a phenomenal story. You should read 19 and 20. Till that's ingrained in your head. That God shows up on that mountain. There's thunder and lightning. That mountain is shaking. And the people run for the tent saying, God, uh, Moses, Moses, tell God never to show up like that again lest we die. But in that moment, they make a covenant. They say, whatever the Lord wants us to do, we will do. Speak through Moses. But in verse 22, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. Isn't that amazing? What this is saying and what I'm trying to show is that the kingdom of God is not some far off distant place where we hope God's using a telescope and looking in on our lives. The kingdom of God is an overlapping kingdom. God's kingdom is in our midst. He's in our presence. And it was fundamentally brought to us by Jesus. But that pushes a little faster than I want to get to. There there were other instances in the Old Testament where God demonstrated his willingness and readiness to act in the world and manifestations in the sky. Occurrences that happened several times of demonstrations of fire and God showing up. 1 Samuel chapter 7, 10 was another one of those instances where God's thunder from heaven upon Israel's enemies stopped them in their tracks. And this, these flashes of God's presence in the world caused the Israelites to say that God is a consuming fire. In 2 Chronicles 16.9, the Israelites used to say, would say, the eyes of the Lord run back and forth across the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of them whose heart is perfect towards him. This shows that God's kingdom, God's presence are not far off. They are here in this world, in our lives. We experience it. We see this especially coming in expanded ways when Jesus shows up in the New Testament. 
where God is near and heaven is near. Of course, the incarnation of Jesus is a combination of this. It's why God is said to be Emmanuel. Christ is said to be Emmanuel, God with us. God dwells here. God lives here. This is his world. His kingdom is being built here. Therefore, when John wrote in the epistle, the first epistle, he marvels that he and the other disciples were able to hear, to see, and to handle the very word of life, the very source of life, which was from the beginning. God broke into our world. I'd like to read this little passage that kind of describes this so that we get a picture of what is being said. It's a passage from Dallas Willard. Therefore, we see Jesus interacting with and demonstrating the kingdom day by day through his life, his transfiguration, his resurrection appearance, his ascension, the coming of the Spirit with the sound from heaven where we had seen Jesus go up in his ascension and filling the room where the disciples were waiting for the promised one, the flames of fire resting upon their heads. Connection with the flames of fire demonstrated in the Old Testament. That steady stream of interaction is God's new people on earth and the angelic beings bringing the flames, which harkens back to Jacob's ladder that you just mentioned. All of these gave the early church the strongest possible impression of the reality and the immediate presence of the kingdom of Christ in their midst and in their lives. And this presence is an ongoing reality for us as believers in the 21st century if we believe it, if we see it. Christ is not dead. And the kingdom that he brought is real today. It's real today in the 21st century as it was in the 1st century. God is not out there somewhere. He is near to us. So how do we experience this power? When we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, we're talking about Jesus preaching about his kingdom and where we live as his followers. So how do we tap into this problem, this power, this change, this transformation? And that's why we're taking this break and talk about spiritual disciplines because it's not going to be something that's automatic. It's going to be something that we have to work at. So I have three things that we must know. First, make an assessment of your present life. Our picture of Christianity has to be reevaluated. Following Jesus is not just about forgiveness and trusting that he paid the penalty for our sins and that we're then just enjoying that promise and enjoying life and traveling through life waiting to get to heaven when he comes. This was never God's intent in the work of salvation in us. God's work of salvation is a work of restoration, taking us back to where he originally planned for his creation, his people to be. It is a work of demonstration to show forth the beauty and the wonder and the glory of God through the lives of his people and a work of real life as God intended life to be, where we would find real joy, real purpose, Real satisfaction. He's the one that gave us life. He knows how to direct our lives. 
And the kingdom of Christ is to be a place where we find life. So we must assess where we're at. Have we been living a life of believing that we have received the gift of salvation, trusted in Jesus, and now we just kind of build our own kingdoms, do our own things? Do we understand the weight of the gospel and the message and the life of the kingdom that we've been invited into? This is near the thing I talked about last week. But this is part of the hurdle we have. Realizing and thinking that it's about salvation. I've got that solved. I've trusted Jesus. And so now I'm just doing what I should do. Go to church and give tithes and serve and want and be involved. But it's so much more than that. It is living as his people. Living in his kingdom where he rules and reigns. Where we give of our lives, our hearts, our direction and everything to satisfy our Savior. To please him. Realizing that brings us into full life as well. God blessed us. And anything outside of that is building our own kingdom, doing our own thing. That's why the Sermon on the Mount is so comprehensive in how we are to live, how we are to respond to people outside, how we are to do religious behaviors, how we practice devotion, how we worry about our stuff, whether we have enough to eat or not. Christ is interested in a new kind of people who are participants in his kingdom. And the only way we're going to move down that road, and we, we, I believe that it is a road of training and, and learning and being transformed. It's not an automatic thing. It's not, we trust Christ and we're all that we were meant to be. This is part of a process of growing. We have to be able to assess our present life. Now, I know many of you know that I love sports, especially not all sports, uh, football mainly. And, and I love football because in some ways it's kind of a, a microcosm of lessons of life. There are rules, there's cooperation, there are roles, and there are talents and things. Nobody can just carry the thing, and a lot of people think they can, but nobody can just carry the thing and do it themselves. And... And the other thing I remember is, like, when I was in sports, and it was for a very short time in school, there, when it come to the end of the season, you know, the coach would say, you know, you guys want to play next year? I want to know what you're going to do in the off season, Because you're never really off. You've got to work on the things that you're short on. If you can't lift weights, you're not strong, you need to be in the weight room. I want to hear your plans. I want to look at what you're going to do. If you don't have endurance, I want to see, are you planning to run so many miles a day? And then how can you increase that? And how can you bring other people along with you so that you grow more, more, more? Because only those who continue to progress will contribute to the team. Well, as Jesus lays this down, his dream, his hope, his longing for us as his people. He wants us to enter into life. He wants us to be a part of his kingdom. And it is the greatest kingdom. It is a kingdom that will never lose, will never fail. It will be eternal. So there's nothing that's more important that we can best invest our time in than the kingdom of Christ. And so Christ is asking us to assess where we are and to make steps so that we can be his people fully. 
begins with assessing. Second, make a commitment to disciplines of subtraction. Now here, I want to say that there, I got so much I could talk about in subtraction. And all of the disciplines of subtraction, it's hard to cover it all. But fundamentally, the use of the disciplines of subtraction will cause us to single out those tendencies that may harm our work with our walk with God. The circumstances that surround our lives and our behaviors will use the disciplines to bring about basic desires, to change our wrong desires and bring about basic desires to be subordinate and in coordination with the kingdom of God. These are training activities that will contribute to our walk with Christ. And, and I'm afraid that part of what has caused us to kind of invest our time in the kingdoms of our world and our lives and our joys and our longings is that there's no real importance. We've trusted in Christ and we've got our uh, salvation and so we're just going on and waiting for that day. But that is not Christianity. Christianity is a following of Jesus with our whole heart so that our lives reflect what God is has done, what gifts he has brought to us in Jesus. And we need disciplines of subtraction so that we're not caught up in the process of the world around us. We will easily follow that process. Subtraction causes us to take a step back. So let me just give you a couple of disciplines of subtraction. And then I had one that I want to dive into a little more. Disciplines of subtraction, fasting. Fasting is one of those areas that I don't know, there isn't a widespread practice of fasting. But in the first century, in several centuries after the first century, people fasted regularly. Some regular fasting two times a day. In the Didache, it said people fasted for three days before they got baptized. The congregation fasted before anyone got baptized. Fasting was a normal rhythm of the life of the believer. And why was that? Because Jesus fasted. Because we learn that mankind does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And fasting says, I'm going to subtract from my life. Those things that I usually fill up with food when I'm anxious, when I'm down, when I want to have fun, I want to just do it with food. And it adds to it all. But we need to subtract some things from our lives to say, you know, for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of transformation and my walk with God, I'm subtracting food so that I can give attention and openness and responsiveness to what God wants to happen in my life. The funny thing is God doesn't force himself into our lives. We must hear from the word. We must gather together. We must see the value of it. And then we must commit ourselves to it. Fasting is one of those uh, frugality. What this means is just don't, don't live buying everything you can, using all of your finances just to the limits because somehow that shows that you're as good or important or recognized by everybody around you. You, you use your money, your financial ability to satisfy yourself. Pull back 
And say, my satisfaction and my worth does not come from what I have, what I own, what I possess. I limit that. It's a spiritual discipline. Subtract that from my life to say, my life is about the kingdom of God. These are quick subtractions that I'm mentioning. Chastity. And chastity is a little tough topic. Sexual activity. If you remember, Paul in in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 talked about a husband and wife for a time, taking a time away from that physical activity to devote themselves to prayer. I want to say that maybe in our culture, sexuality is what defines us and that people dabble in it in all different kinds of ways and we have naturally given ourselves to it. We think that it does define us. But we need to be careful, and especially in the areas of pornography and all of this ravaging our world. In the Christian church, there should be a purity, a commitment to the kingdom and to what is right and righteous by the people of God. And unfortunately, that discipline is not evident in the church. We need to change that. One of my favorites is secrecy. I think it's a subtraction that we desperately need. Secrecy is saying, I don't need to be recognized. I can serve God and do what he wants me to do for God and God alone. If we think about Jesus, this is commands that don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. When you're going to pray, go into the closet, go and pray to your heavenly father. He will reward you himself. Isn't it? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we as God's people in the kingdom of Christ would be satisfied with his love, his commitment to us. We wouldn't need any PR management. We wouldn't need to be recognized by anyone. We could selflessly serve and give. Maybe we would see more of when people are doing work together. They would long for that other person to be recognized even if they don't receive any recognition at all. Secrecy, it's a spiritual discipline. It's a recognition that God sees, and he's the important one. You give over all your PR expectations and views to God. And when he's ready for you to be recognized, he will recognize you, but it's not your job and it's not on your plate You are offering your service to God alone. So intentionally do things for people and acts of love and service that you won't get recognized for. These are all disciplines of subtraction because what they do is they push us to who we are. In our relationship with God, it builds that connection with God, that confidence in God, his love and his grace that he's poured into our lives. And then we operate on the basis of that relationship alone. And we'll never fulfill or live out the Sermon on the Mount, the commands that are found here, doing it for other people or expectations or views or anything. We won't have any power. What we're looking for is the grace of God who's changed our heart to live out of that relationship with God and that relationship with God shaping our lives. And that will only happen So we seek first his kingdom. We know him in the private places. 
We're not building our kingdom. We're not satisfying our fleshly desires and our longings and our hopes for ourselves, but we're solely committed to his kingdom, his purposes, and we'll live under his direction. So the big one that I wanted to spend a little more time and running out of time is solitude. No, I'm not a very good, I'm not good at solitude. <laughs> I'm one of those that if I feel a little down or I'm depressed or lonely or, you know, I want to get, go get a group of people together. You know, that's always the, the solution. But I was amazed at one of the teachers that uh, I've been reading about disciplines who said solitude is the most powerful discipline you'll ever encounter. Solitude is withdrawing. It's not just getting refreshment and rest by being by yourself. Solitude is choosing to be alone and to dwell on your experience of isolation from other human beings. And this normal course of day-to-day human interactions locks us up into a pattern of feelings and thoughts and actions that actually cause us to walk in step with the world that oftentimes ignores God or even worse, stands against God. Solitude subtracts that influence from our life. Solitude sets us by ourselves with God. Solitude's not easy, but it is important because we meet God in unique ways there. One has said, solitude is a terrible trial, for it works to crack open and burst apart the shell of our superficial securities. Doesn't sound like a great place to go, but it is probably one of the most fruitful disciplines we'll have. Because we're geared to God and God alone. In those places, there is the, the realization that there are deep crevices in our lives and crevices of loneliness and brokenness. And in those places, we need the light of Christ. But we often spend our life covering those up. And solitude will allow Christ to enter those places. Solitude is fundamental. Let me, let me just quickly. Um, Jesus entered into solitude regularly, and let me just mention a few. He inaugurated, he inaugurated his ministry with forty days in the wilderness, as we remember in Matthew four. And before he chose the twelve apostles, he spent the entire night alone and in the desert hills. Solitude. When he received the news of John the Baptist's death, he withdrew. From there, in a boat, to a lonely place, apart. After the miraculous feeding of 5,000, Jesus went up into the hills by himself. Following a long day of work, in the morning, a great while before day, he rose and went up to a lonely place. When the twelve returned from preaching and healing ministry, Jesus instructed them, Come away with me, by yourselves, to a lonely place. After Jesus healed the leper, Jesus withdrew to the wilderness and prayed. Jesus, and I could add to that, but Jesus 
practiced solitude. Solitude is not something we practice very much, but it can be, probably is, a fundamentally important discipline for us to live out the kind of life Jesus is describing in the Sermon on the Mount. So I'd encourage you with a couple of practical things. First, take advantage of little solitudes. That is, parts of your day where you're by yourself, thinking or walking when you wake up in bed before the family gets busy. Use that as time of solitude before the Lord. Our prayer times are often times of solitude. Build into your prayer times, not talking, not being busy, but sitting quietly before the Lord. Read scripture as a practice of solitude. Second, find places where you can build solitude into your life. Places designated for that. In your home, outside. Put up a little tent in your house. Third, let's discipline ourselves so that solitude shapes who we are. Especially in the words we use. If we practice solitude, we won't have to cover up every relationship with many words. And we can get to the place where we say few things, but profound things when we do speak. Plan times away where you'll spend three or four hours away. Thinking about the next year, the next five years, the next ten years in solitude before the Lord. These kinds of disciplines, I know that you can hear this sermon, we can walk out and say, oh, well, that's interesting ideas. Uh, yeah, maybe uh, next week will be even more interesting. I don't know. Uh, but what I'm wanting you to do, and, and, and I've been trying to work on these disciplines in my life for since my sabbatical. Actually, the sabbatical is where I started to realize how I missed a lot of this in my Christian life. That all of these normal Christian activities really didn't bring the transformation I needed in a deeper level. And to be in a place of real transformation where I'm trusting and living the life of Christ, I have to practice these. Now, I've known these and I'm trying these and I'm working them, but they're not going to just come into your life easily. They have to be valued. It's one of the reasons I spend time talking about the kingdom of God first. Because if we think it's just another thing we can do, then we're not going to put the time and effort into it. But if we're going to live as disciples of Jesus and we're going to be a part of his kingdom, which is kingdom living now, we're going to realize how important these things are. And I can't just hear a message about it. I have to figure out how to build it into my life because it's essential for my following Jesus. We'll never do these things in the sermon without the discipline of drawing near to Christ and allowing him to change us from our heart, from the inside out. So solitude. We need to be centering our lives on Christ. Third and last and quick, practice disciplines of subtraction with the goal of tending to the heart. This is not some kind of checklist, things I want to do. Whenever the disciplines become things that give me pride or say, hey, look, at I've done this and I've done that. It's not tied to what you're doing. It's tied to the shape of your heart. 
the power of that life of Christ in you so that you live out of that relationship. The most important thing you and I need, all of us need, is to live out of that relationship where he is Lord. He is guiding and directing. His life is flowing through us. That's what's essential. Tending to the heart. I love what St. Augustine said. He said that a well-ordered heart is to love the right thing to the right degree in the right way and with the right kind of love. The goal of disciplines is to allow our heart to shape our lives in accordance with our Lord. When the heart is well-ordered, we are not only increasingly free from sin, but increasingly free from the desire of sin, and we move into a place where we hold others as God's special creations. And we act towards the world around us with hope and love and grace as Jesus did. He encountered the world with love. And not just sappy, kind of just I love you, but with hopeful love that his kingdom can enter new lives. And we see the power of it because his kingdom is alive in us. That's why it's so important. Seek his kingdom first. And he will take us down the road he wants for us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of, of love and faithfulness and long-suffering. You pursue us. You invite us into life as you've promised it, as you designed it, as you've offered it. And you invite us to step in and that you will take us by the hand. You will shape us. That you've given us your Holy Spirit to give us holy longings. And Lord, you're asking of us to lay aside our own kingdoms and to be people of your kingdom. Lord, I pray that for each of us and for myself, that we would see clearly, that we would see our need for you. And that your life would flow through us. That we would be your people. Lord, we need it. The world needs it. You are the Savior and Lord who is worthy of it. May we be your people. In Jesus' name, amen.